Open your Bibles to Mark 6. We'll begin at verse 45. And straightway, Jesus, he, Jesus, constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in the rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. And about the fourth watch of the night, it's about three in the morning, he came to them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up in unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore, amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we really need to understand this passage of scripture so that we may have courage to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, even as we take to ourselves the armor of God, we have the helmet of salvation. And we have, Lord, our feet that have been given sandals that are of the gospel of peace. And we even have a sword, the word of God. And we pray that it would be effective in our ministry, in our work for you. But we must take courage. And like Joshua of old, on the cusp of taking the children of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land, you told him through Moses to be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be dismayed. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, is with you everywhere you go. Lord, you're with us everywhere we go, and we need your help to be courageous and stand in a difficult time and to do right. So I pray today, even as we open your word, open our hearts, Lord, to see what you want us to see here and change to be more like Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. On April 20th, 1863, Confederate General Thomas Jackson and his wife Mary met at a train depot at Guinea Station just south of Fredericksburg, Virginia. Accompanying his wife was their infant daughter, Julia, and they stayed in a nearby house for about nine days. It was really the last time of married life they had together. It was the eve of the Battle of Chancellorsville, and Union General Joseph Hooker had hatched a plan that he thought was, he thought was genius. <laughs> he would send troops around the Confederate line and crush the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's troops. And he told an aide something like, I hope God has mercy on Lee's soul, for I will have none. Well, it didn't go as General Hooker planned. His scheme didn't work. Lee was aggressive, and his, aggressive, his aggressiveness put Hooker into a defensive mode 
and allowed General Jackson's troops to attack Hooker's weak position. And the National Park Service actually has a website dedicated to the Battle of Chancellorsville. And they say on the site that this battle represented the best leadership in all of the Civil War. But at the same time, think about this. Hooker only lost 13% of his men. General Lee lost around 22% of his men. And he lost Thomas Jackson. The courageous, stout-hearted general was killed by his own troops, actually with North Carolina troops, uh, that shot him, mistakenly thinking he was the enemy. And the stone wall fell. What made Thomas Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, such an inspiration to his troops is that he was known for his courage. Although in recent days, scholar thinks maybe Jackson was just a little crazy. He might not have been so courageous. It's just nuts. You know, in our day, it seems like there's a lack of courage. It seems that way. And I say seem because I think there are people who have that kind of courage. But they're just not in situations where they're very visible. For example, it takes courage to have biblical convictions. It takes courage to be a parent, to confront your child with sin, and to fight against the pull of the world, against the hearts of your children. <laughs> That's courage. It takes courage to share your faith with others. Courage is standing up for the truth on social media, hopefully in a kind and gracious way. It's courageous to tell your spouse, your husband or your wife, that you're going to follow God's way, even if he or she doesn't want to do that. And it takes courage to work through the trials of life all the while keeping your focus on Jesus when everything around you seems to be crumbling. You know, this is especially true when your problems are brought on to you either by God or maybe God allowed it to happen. And this is why some of the greatest examples of Christian courage include the Christian mom sharing her trust in God while her child is undergoing a life-threatening medical procedure. Or the Christian businessman who continues to faithfully serve the Lord even while his business is failing. Or the, the Christian teenager who really wants to fit in with his peers, but faces ridicule for standing up for his faith. To me, that's what courage is. It's, it's really not different from the heart of Stonewall Jackson. To go through the furnace of testing and keep your faith in Jesus. This is what the disciples needed to learn. And we need to learn that too. So consider with me first. You may experience God-ordained difficulty. In fact, conflicts are often created by God. Look at verse 45. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before Bethsaida, while he sent the people away. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. 
And when even was come, the ship was in the middle of the sea and Jesus alone on the land. Now, the origin of the conflict in question is really pretty much mundane. And truth be told, sometimes the conflicts we go through begin in a very ordinary, very mundane kind of way. I mean, Jesus puts his disciples into a boat. He points in the direction that they're to go. And he goes up into a mountain to pray after dispensing the crowd. But that separation from the disciples, that's significant. Because if you think about it, remember the earlier storm the disciples are in? Remember, they're in a boat. And who's with them in the boat? Jesus is in the boat. In fact, when we went through that passage, we made a really big deal that Jesus is in the boat with us. Who's not in the boat this time? Who's missing? Jesus isn't in the boat. Jesus is still around, but he's not in the boat. And now the wind is blowing. It's not the same kind of storm. It's The water isn't filling the ship, but they're rowing, 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 and they're not going anywhere. In fact, they haven't gone very far if Jesus can see them out in the water doing their best rowing. See, Jesus was in the ship at the first time, even though he was sleeping, and now he's not in the boat with them. It's kind of mundane, ordinary day. You wake up, you do all the habits that you've developed, you know, brush your teeth and comb your hair and get cleaned up, put on your clothes for the day, whatever you're going to be doing. You put on different outfits and you go out to your day and you're just doing your day. And often the conflicts come right in the middle of all those mundane kind of things. As God just sets you on course for your day, mundane life becomes conflict because sometimes God makes the winds blow. Now, this contrary wind was not Mother Nature. It wasn't global warming. It it wasn't anything natural at all. The contrary wind was God's sovereign plan for these men at this moment in time. This is hard for us all to grasp. I will admit I struggle with this too. When you get in your car and it doesn't start, or the traffic is extra thick and you'd only allowed for a certain amount of time, but there have been lots of accidents. When I lived in Northern Virginia, if they mentioned the word snow, people would just park their car and start walking. I mean, the traffic would get so bad. And you don't plan for that. And now your day is behind and your or your day is ruined. And you think, well, come on, people. What's the problem here? And you don't realize God is the one ruling over all. So mundane life is conflict when the storm blows. Think about how the mundane can turn into a trial in a moment of time. I mean, your child is on a bus at school, going out on a field trip with his classmates, and the bus is in an accident. Or that favorite salad at the business lunch, well, this time, tainted with a little bacteria, and the next three days of your life are are pretty well ruined. Or you wake up one moment, uh, one morning, uh, with a little pain in your abdomen, and that leads to a serious medical diagnosis. You see, mundane life can turn on a dime when God makes the wind blow, and those powerful winds blow your ship of life. They do. 
This is what Jesus said actually in Matthew 7, right? He says, you built your house on a rock. Why? Because not that the rock is, is outside the storm. The rains come. The winds blow and beat upon the house. If you build your house on sand, to destroy your house. But if you build your house on the firm rock of the words of Jesus, your house will stand. And so the rains still blow. The winds still blow. Every day could be a day of crisis for us. And these conflicts, let her be, may cause you to struggle. It says in verse 48, Jesus saw them toiling and rowing because the wind was contrary to them. The wind blew against their God-directed course. I mean, who set them in that direction, right? I mean, you think about this. If Jesus had said to go in the other direction, <laughs> they would have probably have already been there. Uh, if, if they were going with the wind, it would have been pretty easy. But Jesus said, go that way, and that was in the direction of the winds that he knew were coming. And so here is God's directed course directly in the face of the storm. And God causes them to struggle. Now, I'm going to tell you, for many Christians, this doesn't make sense. I mean, the way we think of God, people go, why would God want me to struggle? I mean, I want to serve him with my life. Why would I struggle? Why wouldn't he send me in the direction where the winds are to my back? Where, where it's easy, it's, it's good. Oh, many missionaries have gone to the field and have struggled to win one soul to Christ. And they've struggled to plant a church in that foreign field. Or they've struggled to learn the culture and, and to be able to integrate themselves with the people of that culture. And God sends them to that field and they struggle. Many families struggle. Yes, they, they want to serve the Lord as a family and they come to church and they do everything right, as you would say. But for some reason in their family, there's, there's conflict, there's problems. There's, there's problems and pain. And you say, why would God cause that struggle? Sometimes these conflicts that God ordains causes you to struggle. These contrary winds blow in your face. You know, you say, I'm rowing the way God wants me to row, but he isn't letting me getting any progress. And what do we say in that moment? Well, maybe this isn't right. Maybe I should turn my boat around and go the other direction. No, the disciples knew where they were supposed to go. <clears throat> and God had given them a task to do, but they had, well, maybe they were thinking it was the wrong task. You know, I think to myself, you know, like I've got a balloon, I want to float it over Hawaii, but somehow it ends up going over the continental United States, right? <laughs> Sometimes God sends us into the teeth of the storm. And worse, let her see, your struggles can be compounded by other complications. Look at verse 48 again. About the fourth watch of the night, about three in the morning, Jesus came to them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. But when he saw them walk, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a phantasm, a spirit, not a ghost in the sense of like the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, uh, an actual phantasm, uh, 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 maybe uh, the kind of ghost you think of when we use the word ghost in our culture. And they cried out 
because they all saw him and they were troubled. You see, the complication here in this case is that they're incapable of recognizing God's providential care. Mark clarifies the disciples cannot discern that it's Jesus coming to them. He is about to make himself known to be their God. This is what he's been trying to teach them. In fact, if you, you read the first half of Mark's gospel, Mark is explaining to the disciples who Jesus is. Mark, Mark is reminding them. Jesus has been showing to them who he is, that he is God, that he's the Messiah, the anointed ruler of Israel, the promised one of the Old Testament. This is something Peter will finally confess in chapter 8. But all through these early chapters, Mark is presenting this idea that the disciples just aren't getting it. Jesus has been saying, this is who I am. And they'll go, okay, we understand this is who you are. And then time goes by and Jesus says, this is who I am. And they go, really? It's like they're thick-headed. They, they, they just can't grasp this truth. And they believe the apparition is a ghost. They think it's some sort of supernatural, not God supernatural, but supernatural spirit. And of course, maybe they're thinking a demon or spiritual attack, and they cry out. Here you have all these winds blowing. They've been rowing most of the night, and now they are troubled. They are crying out. And the problem here is they still do not fully comprehend who Jesus is. And when listen, when you get into conflict or crisis, and you don't realize that God is in control, and you don't realize that God has a plan for this crisis in this moment, you may be troubled because you're not seeing who God is in your life. Some of you have walked through very deep waters, very deep waters, very difficult times. And walking through those times, maybe you've even in those moments questioned God's love for you or his plan for your life. Why did you allow this to happen, God? What are you doing here in my life? And, and when we do that, we demonstrate, we reveal, it pulls out of us what is really in our hearts, that deep down we're not fully convinced that God is in control and that he cares for us. Can I just tell you that in theology, there are theologians out there who do not believe the Bible, who will argue either God is all-powerful or God is all-love, but he cannot be both. In fact, some of them hold to a position called open theism, the idea that God cannot see the future, and they'll say God is a loving God, but he can't be an all-powerful God, because why would an all-powerful God, who's also an all-loving God, allow all the suffering on the planet of Earth? One of those men who believes this way teaches over at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. His name is Bart Ehrman. He wrote a book. I have it in my office called God's Problem. It's not God's problem. God doesn't have a problem. <laughs> Suffering's horrible, but it's the result of sin. He God told Adam, you sin, it will bring death into this world. And when death entered into the world, and sin and death entered into humanity, it caused the suffering of humanity. And when we walk through the deep waters of life, there's no question why it happens. 
Do you know why people die, folks? It's not because of cancer. It's not because of some other illness. It's because we are sinners. The day I draw my very last breath and die, you know, you all will already be gone. I understand that, but <laughs> probably not. Probably not. Some of you may still be here. The day I draw my last breath, you can say the reason why Matthew Walker died was because he was a sinner. That was what brings death. And that's what's going to finally kill me. Now, of course, we all know that I'll have new life in Jesus. And I'll draw breath again because of him. These people cry out they don't, because they don't understand who Jesus is. But, but this is what Mark is trying to show in his gospel for us. And this is what Jesus has been trying to show his disciples. He's, he's been trying to answer the question, who is this Jesus? And he's been showing him. He heals the sick and he preaches this good news gospel. And, and this is what we have to know. The very thing the disciples are not so sure about at this moment of time. And Mark, who, by the way, is kind of critical of the disciples. And, and that, that just makes me laugh a little bit. Because remember Mark. I mean, this is the guy who abandoned the apostle Paul, right? Who Paul was pretty critical about himself. Mark's now criticizing the disciples. But remember, Mark's not really writing for himself. He's writing Peter's gospel. And so Peter is actually being a little self-critical here. How could we not see this? How did we not know who Jesus was? And I think this is something we can criticize ourselves too. We know who Jesus is. We have the whole story laid out in front of us. So whenever trouble comes into our lives, we know already it's for our good and his glory. We know that all things work together for good. I teach counseling and one of the things I was taught when I went through counseling training is never quote Romans 8.28 to somebody who's hurting. Don't do it. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. There is never a time where you do not quote scripture to somebody. It's the words of God. Do you know Romans 8 is written to people who are suffering? It's written for the sufferer. They need to know. Now, you can do it in a snarky way. You know, all things work together for good. I'm sorry that you were in that horrible bicycle accident and lost both your arms and legs. It's okay, you know. New things in prosthesis these days. We'll help you out. We'll get you around. It's fine. You know, you do. all things work together for good. You can say it in a snarky way. But, but isn't it a joy to somebody who's going through trouble to know that God is working in your life? And so... It, this, my friends, this is what gives me courage to know he loves me. How do you know? The Bible tells me. And he takes care of me. How do you know? The Bible tells me. He provides for my needs. I don't have to worry about food and clothing. I just have to pursue the kingdom of God because even the birds of the field are clothed. Even the grass is arrayed with glory. God loves you more than grass and birds. He'll take care of you and he'll help you along the way. So God sets me into motion and I'm out and now I'm rowing and I'm rowing and I'm rowing and I feel like I'm getting nowhere. And then he reveals himself to me in those times of difficulty through his word, 
through prayer, through conversation with other believers, the question is, how can I not trust him? How, how can I not believe him? How can we not fully give ourselves, our whole selves, to him? Now, you may experience, in fact, I should probably say will at some point, experience God-ordained conflict, trouble. But you can respond with confidence in his providential care. Now, for a moment, let me stop here in the middle of the sermon and take a step back just for a second, okay? I want to explain to you what I'm going to do for the rest of this passage. Uh, the rest of the passage is actually pretty negative on the disciples. So I'm going to turn it around and put them into positive biblical principles. So I've done a little bit of extra work here for you. So understand that when I'm going to say something, I'm drawing it from the text. But these are positive principles, not negative ones. If we, if we just showed basically the disciples were hard-hearted, by the end we'd all walk out of here with our heads hung low. So I don't want to do that. So this brings us to point number two. You can respond with confidence in God's providence. You can respond with confidence by trusting in God's providence. Courage comes by recognizing the presence of God in your life. Verse 50 again, immediately he talked with them and he said, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased. And then they were out of their minds. <laughs> what in the world just happened? Jesus exhorts us men and women to have courage in difficult times. In fact, that's our word for cheer here in the in the authorized version. Be of good cheer. It's, it's, it, the word means courage. Be of good courage. Have a courageous heart. Take courage, some translations uh, interpret this verse. And that fits with the second part of the statement, do not be afraid, right? So it's not just be, be, you know, be cheerful and don't be afraid. It's be courageous, don't be afraid. And you can imagine why seamen, sailors out on uh, uh, an ocean where there's a storm might be a little bit uncomfortable. So be of good courage. Do not be afraid. And, and Jesus gives them this statement. Do not fear. Why? Because he says, look in between. Do you see? Be of good cheer and be not afraid. What's in between those two phrases? What does Jesus say there? Ego emi. I am. He, the translation here is it is I. But he actually says... Be of good courage. I am. Do not be afraid. Now, when Jesus says, I am, what is he actually saying? Remember, when he says, ego and me, I am, he is now, he's the one who's been walking on the water in the middle of the storm. And now that whole idea takes on its fullest understanding for us in making the claim to be I am. Jesus is not just saying, I am here. Jesus is saying to them, the I am is here. The God who created the planet is here with you right now. He's standing beside you. Deuteronomy 32.29, God says, I am who I am. Or in Isaiah 41.4, he says, I am the one who is speaking. This is the name of God. This is the self-revelation of God. 
And when Jesus says it in the garden of Gethsemane, it causes all of those people there to arrest him to fall back. And the disciples don't fall back because their heads are spinning. They're out of their minds. But Jesus says, God is here. God's here. I know I've told you. I try not to redo illustrations, but I know I do. It's fine. I don't. It's problem is I don't write them out, and whatever comes to my mind uh, is what I say. So that's kind of how that works. I, w- I would just. It's just so ingrained in my mind. It, it's such a funny story to me. I was I was at boot camp, and I had a senior drill instructor who was just a, an evil man. He got kicked out of the Marine Corps for abusing privates, uh, uh, recruits. He was a terrible guy. He punched me uh, pretty hard once. You know, I mean. Hey, I learned I could take a punch. That was nice to learn. Good lesson. Um, but uh, some privates, some other recruits were going to turn on him and were going to report his, his abusive behavior to the first lieutenant who was in charge of our company. And that would have really destroyed the career of our senior drill instructor, who was a man, Sergeant, Staff Sergeant Stevens. We really liked him a lot. He was like our, our dad, our our uh, home away from home at Paris Island, he was the dad. He, was a, he really was a great man. I had a lot of respect for him. So I actually went and told him myself. I said, look, I just want you to know these guys are about to go tell the first lieutenant what's, what's been happening. Well, I'll never forget. I'm standing there, and this, this, this guy who was really upset, this drill instructor came in. He didn't know what was going on. He goes, hey, Walk, what's going on with you? You know, kind of looking at me because I'm talking to the senior drill instructor. And the senior drill instructor sends me away. I can't figure out how this guy, he must have been dumb as a post, seriously, because he couldn't figure this out. Because the senior drill instructor apparently dressed him down in the office because when what happened next was, about 10 minutes after that, I was left the room, he, the drill instructor comes out and leaves, goes the other way and leaves. He went home. And he was supposed to be with us the whole evening. The senior drill instructor comes out, gathers us around in what's called a school circle. We're all on the, on the ground sitting uh, cross-legged, um, and he basically says, look, everybody, uh, I know this has been, I've heard this has been going on here. We're taking care of it. It's not going to happen again. It's not right. And uh, you don't need to tell the lieutenant what's been going on. Um, and, and, and really, this was his career. He, he thanked me personally uh, later for, for letting him know. Well, the other guy couldn't figure it out. And weeks, a couple of weeks went by where he would go, okay, who, who, who told on me? Who told on me? And I'm just saying, I'm not telling him. I'm not going to tell him who told on him. And, you know, the guy who was going to tell the first lieutenant told on me. So the guy who was going to turn on him turned on me. There's a lesson learned. And, and one day, the guy shows, the, this drill instructor shows up, and he calls me off to the side, and he whispers in my ear, I know it was you. I'm thinking, it took you this long. You are a bag of hammers. You know that? I mean, this is what I'm thinking. Because, I mean, how dumb can you be? I was standing there talking to him. I left. You got chewed out. And then you got in trouble. But he didn't figure that out. Okay. He had to be told. So now he's angry. And so he he had me doing push-ups. And he leans down and he says to me horrible things. He's going to do to my family. I'm going to murder your family. I'm going to kill your mom. Uh, and all this horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. You should ne- nobody should ever have to hear. And and the whole time I'm doing push-ups, I'm just thinking to myself, "You are an idiot, man." It. I was so past him by then. We only had two or three weeks left in boot camp. I was so past him. 
But I wrote a note home to my dad. Now, my dad has lost a lot of weight. My dad used to be, he is a large man. And I wrote a note home to my dad and told him what this guy did. And, and the day came for family day. It's the day before you graduate. And my dad had back then a big black Lincoln town car. And he pulls up, he's got my, the rest of my family, my, my sister, my mom, I think maybe uh, my grandmother. Uh, he pulls up and I'm standing there and this, this uh, sergeant is now down in my ear whispering more of the awful things he's gonna do to me. And, and uh, my dad's car pulls up and he, he's now, you know, he's trying to be uh, diplomatic with the parents who are coming. And my dad gets out of the car and he goes over and says, hi, uh, uh, I'm Sergeant Wilkes. Um, and my dad goes, oh, you're Sergeant Wilkes. <laughs> and then I'll never forget this. He goes like this. Now, I can't imagine treating a drill instructor at Paris Island by telling him, come here like a little child, come here. And he pulls him under a tree, and all I heard was Sergeant Wilkes going, yes, Mr. Walker, yes, Mr. Walker, yes, yes, you're right, yes, Mr. Walker, yes, yes, yes. And I was doing push-ups, and I was thinking, Dad, Dad's here. <laughs> when you're in a crisis, your whole world is spinning out of your control. Dad is still here with you at that moment in that hospital room. In, 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 your, in your bedroom when all the lights are off and it's dark and you're just staring at the ceiling, God's there. He's with you. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. And you think, I've been rowing against the wind and I'm not getting anywhere. And we forget. His presence gives us courage. No. What does Jesus do when he arrives? He gets into the boat. Now that ought to tell them something. They don't realize it, but he gets into the boat. And when he gets into the boat, immediately the storm stops. Now they should go, oh wait, I've seen this before. This is a rerun. I know what's going on here. But instead, they're astonished. Sore amazed is the way the King James puts it. I love that word, sore amazed. Just astounded with great astonishment. I can't believe this. How did this happen? You know, he did it just a few weeks ago, but amazing. And this is kind of how we are. God helps us, and a year later, he helps us, and a year later, he helps us. And, and we just, every time the trouble hits, oh, my life's out of control. It's all really bad. It's horrible. And then God helps us again. Oh, yeah, that's right. He helps me. Oh, all right. And then testimony time. Let me tell you how God helped me. And then, and then a year or two goes by, and now we're in crisis again. And, oh, no. and then God helps us again. And we go, oh, yeah. And, and at what point do we learn that lesson? So that when the storms come, instead we're going, okay, where's God now? Where, how's he going to show himself to me right now? Because I know he is. Because this is who he is. You see, see, Mark's point here is, for his disciples, is concluding in verse 52, that we must refocus on who Jesus is. They considered not the miracle of the loaves because they had a hard heart. God, friends, is more amazing than his miracles. He is the one who performs these incredible feats. 
This is because he's God. He rules over all, over nature, over people, even over nations. And the miracles so extraordinary to us are not extraordinary to him. And our astonishment when he overrules in our lives reveals that we have a lack of trust in him. We should be trusting God in our marriage, in our finances, in our parenting, in our health. We should be trusting God. But we're surprised. And that's our lack of faith. One commentator said, what Mark is saying to the disciples is not so much that they had a hard heart. Yes, they had a hard heart. He, he's trying to show us all and the disciples it, is that what it, God really demands is a heart change. Instead of living and reacting to trouble like pagans do, we have to react uh, like Jesus wants us to react. That we come to this problem and we say, okay, Lord, all right, I'm going to focus my eyes back on you, recognize that you are God, this is what Mark is trying to say. So that when people ask, who is this Jesus? You say, oh, I can tell you who Jesus is. He's the God of the universe. He is the, he is the Holy One of Israel. He's the Prince of Peace. He, he controls everything. All authority in heaven and in earth have been given to him. And he rules it all. And I just put my eyes right back on him. He's the key to everything that you're doing in life. <clears throat> Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle were um, a, an elderly couple who had no money, and they were living in Elmira, Ohio, in a, um, or New York rather, it's right across the border, I guess. Is it right across the border from Ohio? It's in New York, southern, not really, more central New York, I think. But in Elmira, this old uh, old folks' home, kind of a rest home, um, and here's this couple, and there's this tiny little room, and it's uncomfortable, it's cramped, and, and it's not very nice. And, and into um, the Doolittle's life came an evangelist and his wife. Um, his last name was Martin. I'm trying to think. Her name is Sevilla Martin. His, William Martin, something like this. Anyway, they came into the Doolittle's life. And, and all they, they kept saying to themselves was, you know, these Doolittles, they are so cheerful. They're so, they're so fun to be around. And they have it so bad. How is this possible? And, and one day, Mr. Martin said to Mrs. Doolittle, how is it that you're always so happy? And she said, well, I just know that if his eye is on the sparrow, he watches me. Well, Sevilla went home and she began to write a poem. Why should I feel discouraged? You know this song? Do you know, do you know this is such a well-known song? It's not her hymnal, which I have no idea why. It's such a well-known song. It's been sung by Christians and Others. <laughs> That's all I could say. Maybe non-Christians, people I don't know. Whitney Houston sang it uh, and recorded this song. Um, his eyes on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. He's just with me all the time. Yep, you can be in the midst of a sea right now, ladies and gentlemen. But do not fear. Take courage. God 
is with you right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time of Bible study today and looking into your word. What an incredible story this is. Help us to have a changed heart, transformed by your word and your spirit, that we, Lord, would not be dismayed and discouraged when the winds blow in our lives, but rather take courage and be not afraid because God is with us. Before I finish praying, maybe you need some courage in your heart today. Maybe this is kind of where you're at. I'm not saying you don't have any courage. I'm sure you do. But in your heart, you know where you're at. And you just say, God is speaking to me right now where I'm at, that I would take courage. I'd love to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand? Anybody like that? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I will pray for you. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I will pray for you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I will pray for you. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. Let me just tell you, if you're not in a crisis, you will be soon. <laughs> it's just the way life works. Don't forget this lesson. Let's not be like the disciples in the first half of Mark. Let's be like disciples who know the whole story so that we can have a good testimony to others. Father, for those to whom you are speaking today specifically, we praise you. Help us to grow in our Christian walk, that we would be people who have a testimony that others could see and, and follow, that they would know that Jesus is with us everywhere we go. And that's why we still have a smile in difficult times. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a brief hymn of invitation. Just go to the Lord.